When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Sarah. Dimity and I would love your help in making the Another Mother Runner podcast, the original Friday show, AMR Answers, and Many Happy Miles, the best show they can be by completing a short anonymous survey. The link to the survey is in the show notes. Filling out the survey should take about 10 minutes. Your answers will help us determine future topics, guests, and suitable sponsors. We really appreciate your time and input. To show our gratitude for completing the survey, you'll receive a 15% discount code to our Mother Runner store once you finish the survey. Thanks in advance for your thoughtful responses. Welcome to Many Happy Miles, a podcast that celebrates all type of forward movement. Whether it's your first crisp aired run on a fall morning or a few miles on the treadmill at the stuffy gym, we're here to say yay to all of us. I'm Dimity McDowell, co-founder of Another Mother Runner, and today we are continuing our series, The Final Finish Line, four shows devoted to the time when running is no longer an option for your body. Last week, we focused on the physical body with an orthopedic surgeon and his patient, and this week we're headed to your head to talk through the mental side of retiring from running, which is very hard, I will say. So helping me untangle that today is Kim Dawson, a professor of sports and exercise psychology at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario, and the owner of Mind to Achieve. She has a 20 and 21-year-old son, two of them, (laughs) and has been a runner for her entire life. So welcome, Kim. So excited to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So you told me you were a runner for your whole life. So when Mm -hmm. did you really start running? Was that in grade school or? Absolutely. So I first started, my first sport was probably soccer. And from that, it was just training for soccer all the time and, and just absolutely loved it. It became more than just training for a sport. It became a life upon itself. So from that, just built into 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons, triathlons, adventure racing, you name it, still doing it. You're still doing it. So do you know how many marathons you've done in your life? I've done seven. Seven. Okay. Yep. And what are, and, and you've done some adventure racing. That's kind yes. of fun. Yeah. Adventure racing is the, is what I'm really enjoying right now. So it's, it's a little bit less traditional than a triathlon. So it involves running and trekking and orienteering through the woods, paddling, and then mountain biking of some sort. So it really is using your running to a way to move and do different things with less rules than triathlon. So you have to be creative and also fit. So I quite like it. I love that. I love that. And so then when in your, life. Did you feel a spark for sports psychology? When did you know that that's what you wanted to kind of focus on? I think it was actually through running because I started to realize that physiologically you could train as much as you possibly could and do your absolute best that way. And when you started to try to translate that into performances in specific races, it's not a one-to-one formula. So I started to realize early on in terms of the way that I thought about things, the way that I felt about things could definitely affect the run that I had. And so I was very emotionally driven with my running as well. I noticed that, that if I felt overwhelmed in my life, I would feel overwhelmed in my running. And so that really inspired me to start thinking about this as a profession and training myself 
first and learning how to train others second. So I just learned early on in terms of the, the impetus in terms of how impactful a mind can be. Yeah, for sure. Well, and so you've been in this field for a while. So so who do you typically work with? I know you teach. And then do you also take athletes like on a one-on-one basis or teams? Absolutely. So for probably about the last 15 years, I've been working with individual athletes. I work with teams. I work with recreational athletes. I, I started in the world of running. It was actually interesting. One of our very top running programs, Speed River in Guelph, Ontario, was looking to send about four athletes to the 2008 Olympics and asked if I would be part of this total running package. And from huh. running, so running is my first love and the runners across Canada and the US. So I still work with runners all across the world because now that the world has become so virtual, that was the one thing that COVID did give us, this complete understanding and familiarity and comfort with having a virtual therapy session. I still work with runners. And so from that, I branched out into some other areas and group dynamics. And from there, I've gone into corporate, medical, actors, anybody that is in an achievement setting where they're trying to actually be their best. Yeah, cool, cool. Well, so when I spoke to you the first time for the series for women's running, you talked about how we often put so much energy into the journey, like mm -hmm. orientation, the first day of school, you know, raising a child, training mm -hmm. for a marathon even. But it's so rare that when you're in on that journey, you think about the end and right. you were clearly an advocate for healthy transitions. So can you talk a little bit about what that means and, and how you are trying to kind of shift the paradigm a little bit? Well, it's really interesting because I actually had a conversation with a colleague of mine yesterday and she, her area of expertise is palliative care. And we were talking about good endings and bad endings and how much it depends upon the preparation that we have, how much control we have in the decision making about what it will look like and what we will do. And mm. I thought that is an actual excellent way to start thinking about parlaying out of sport. So I try to, when I'm working with athletes, really keep a view and a, and a lens on what the end's going to look like for them. They have a very difficult time doing that. And we do know it. And if you're even following the U.S. Open tennis, that was what the number one thing that people were asking Novak. He's 36 years old. When is this going to come to an end? And so yeah. athletes don't really do a very good question of preparing for that and asking for it. So I do think that we need to start thinking about that. We do so much, as you said, about onboarding and starting to enter. We have learned to run groups. We have learned to do a marathon groups. But we really need to start having a game plan for when this is going to be done. And we don't psychologically prepare ourselves to do that. Well, so do you recommend, like, if someone is listening right now and is a healthy runner, you know, fairly injury-free, like, and is, you know, running PRs and feeling really good, is this an, an exercise for them or is this an exercise for somebody like me who dealt with like chronic pain and injury after injury and just was like unhealthily holding on, I guess is what I would call it. I think it looks different for different people. I think that if you're a professional runner, and this is something that you're using at this journey of your life or at this chapter of your life to run professionally, you do have to prepare for what that career will look like afterwards. And there has to be some discussion of it. I do think for individuals that are running recreationally, we need to think about who we are holistically as well and sit back and take the question or answer the question about who would I be if this was not running for me? What would I look like? Because we don't yeah. want to be so far in it that we don't have any options when we're not in it. So it's a good question about whether it's related to running or whether it's related to anything else that's going on. So the bottom line is, are we keeping this holistic balanced view of who we are that we could survive if any one of those single entities was gone? And that includes running. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think 
for again, for a lot of our listeners, we have, you know, a lot of people, we say we lead from the middle of the path. We're not making a career <laughs> right, here. Okay. Right. We are not making our living here, but it is such a big part of our identity because it gives us so much confidence. It gives us so much power. It gives us so much autonomy and it's so black and white and crisp and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's also social. something apart from the mom that we are, the worker that we are, the the spouse or the partner that we are. Like, it's just so like, it's just so clear and clean. And yes. I think that's why it's so easy to have it as part of your identity. And, but is that, is that un, again, is that not healthy or talk about that a little bit? I think it is healthy if it brings something to your world. Again, mm-hmm. I think it's unhealthy if we are shutting down other facets of ourselves solely for that aspect. And I don't think we realize that until sometimes when that aspect is gone. And mm-hmm. I certainly find that when I reflect, even in this world of sport, we seem to applaud a lot of things that maybe weren't necessarily for our best growth. And I'll, I'll give an example of this. So a family that we knew, the husband or the father, every single time they went to an event that we would be part of, he would either run there or run back. And we would applaud that. We would be like, oh, that's so fantastic. You just did 10 kilometers. You just did 20 kilometers, et cetera, et cetera. And then it wasn't until he stepped back and he did reflection where he said, you know what? I think I was actually avoiding some situations by not being part of my family unit at that time and isolating myself. Yeah. That's a really good example how in society, we tend to applaud more and more and more and more and more, particularly in the running community. We love that. We love distance. We love intensity. We love miles. We love anything we can quantify, but we don't really stop and think because I did this 20 kilometers here, what else did I sacrifice for today? Right? So those sorts of things in terms of figuring it out in terms of, are we actually shutting down sides of ourselves that we unintentionally did? And that's what I want people to be more aware of and more conscious of in terms of asking these questions about why do what I do? Can I do it if it's not here for me? How would I manage with an injury? What would I do? And those are questions Mm -hmm. that I've asked myself as well. And certainly times if I've had other injuries, I've always sat back and said, thank heavens, it's not my leg. If it was my leg, I don't know if I would have coped with it this well, you know, so there's just different things that go on. So we all have that sense of, you know, this is what I can manage. And this is what I can't manage. But if we can make our brain a little bit more aware of thinking, about ways that we could shift or morph so that we could stay mentally healthy if we did lose some of those things, I think we might be in a better place. I love that. I love that. Well, and just thinking of through the two people, and I'm, I'm blanking on their names. This is where uh, menopause brain comes in. But oh, Simone Biles, for one, yes. yeah. in the Tokyo Olympics. And then I can't think of the tennis player who pulled out of the French Open, I think. Naomi Osaka. Yeah, Naomi Osaka, exactly, for mental health reasons. And I know... Mm-hmm. You know, from a from a spectator point of view, I'm like, what? You know, oh my god, they're so talented. Why don't they just go do what they've been training to do? So, just correct me if I'm wrong, but they are taking obviously a more holistic view. Obviously, it's a different situation with professional top of the league athletes, but. Is that true? Well, yeah. I, Simone Biles is a really interesting one because I do think we almost mislabeled that it was not a mental health problem. She had a physical situation where she has lost her space, her place in space, right? So, as a gymnast, that's really difficult. Her situation, sure. it, it was a symptom because of all of the mental stress and pressures that she was feeling. And I loved it. I actually just saw an interview where she just won the national championship and she talked about her doing the work now of therapy and making sure that her mind is set. She's constant. 
And one of the things she said is she sees herself as something more than a gymnast. She's a wife now. She's a daughter. So we talk about having that bigger view in terms of who she is. So at that Olympics, gymnastics was everything to her. And now it's but one of the things that gives her fulfillment in her life. And I think when we see the professional athletes start to talk about that, we realize how important it is for us to think about that too. Because as recreational athletes, we sometimes shut off other aspects of our life, as I said before, that we don't really know that we did. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so, um, again, one of the things that you said, you had a lot of great quotes um, when I talked to you. <laughs> and you said with running, I mean, we we are read runners, and maybe this is athletes in general, but denial, like so mm-hmm. good at it. You're like, you know, if someone broke up with you, would you still want to go on vacation with them? <laughs> kind of <laughs> talking right. about, you know, yeah. if you're injured and or you have to retire from running because your body just won't withstand it anymore. Why do you keep dreaming about going to Fiji with that? Why mm-hmm. do you keep dreaming about going on a run? Like, can mm-hmm. you talk about that? Because, I mean, I feel that's so hard. Well, so the thing about running is that we do have to realize that our body and our brain changes. So, for example, if I'm working with an elite runner that is a marathon runner and they've gone to the Olympics, when they come back, their brain is different. Right. So okay. we, we endorphin wise, physiologically, neurotransmitters, all of those different things. When we're running, there are things that are happening in our brain. So we can actually get a physiological and a behavioral addiction to actually doing that action. So then the issue hmm. becomes, and this is what one of the debates has been, is about an exercise dependence. Is it a positive or negative addiction? Right. So whether we realize it or not, we've gone into that space. So when it happens, we really have to step back because, again, in relationships that aren't necessarily good for us, we'll still continue to keep going back to it because it's our normal. It's what we feel good. We have that pleasure for a moment. That pleasure is not sustained for a long time, but we're willing to do anything just to get it for a moment. So running is where we definitely see it because high volume running will change the physiology of your brain, will change the biochemistry of your brain. So it takes an awful lot to step back from a behavioral or physiological or an emotional type of dependency to be able to be happy and be able to be sustaining again. Are there other exercises? Is that endurance sports in general? Like, does it, do they have that effect on your brain as well? Or is it just running? I believe so. And again, I'm stepping a little bit out of my expertise going into sure. neurochemistry, but I do believe so. Like the more aerobic, the more consistent activities that we have and the longer dosage, I think that's the big thing is that with some of these activities where you have to train for hours on end with a high dosage volume and frequency, those are the ones that seem to really affect us the most. Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll talk in a little bit about how to, as gracefully as possible, step back from that. We're going to take a break to hear from the brands that support our podcast. Please support them in return. Stay tuned. We'll continue with Kim Dawson after we return. But as far as going through that transition... First of all, how do you handle the emotions? And I realize that's a big thing, but holy mm-hmm. cow. I mean, so for me, I was, you know, told in 2017, end of 2017, I shouldn't run anymore mm-hmm. um, or it would be best for my body. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until early 2020. So it was almost two years before I was able to pull back. And during mm-hmm. that time, I was, you know, I tried to problem solve. I did all the YouTube videos. I cried and cried and cried. I got angry. I got frustrated. I, you know, I mean, it was just, I was like this live wire, but still trying to problem solve. And the emotions were so thick through those two years Mm -hmm. because I was unwilling to 
just detach, you know? And so is that pretty normal, first of all, would you say? Absolutely. And I know where you would look back at and you say, perhaps this wasn't as successful as I would have liked it to be. I look at it and say, it is successful. Look where you are now. And what we're, what you're not satisfied with is the rate of change. And the rate of change will never be at the rate that you will want it to be. And three yeah. years of a coping mechanism, grief takes that long. And you honored your emotions and you did everything that you should. You allowed yourself to go into that valley. You allowed yourself to experience it. So it takes some time to say enough is enough and for our brain to say, okay, we're kind of done this. We've, we've managed it. We're on the other side of it and we can start moving back into a different place, but it takes time. And I, I think that's the thing that we always have to remember is that we have to give ourselves grace and we have to have patience because we don't get to dictate that rate of change necessarily. And I think yeah. anyone that's experienced grief at any juncture, whether it's with a human being or with it's, whether it's with a, a job loss or anything else, they will say that's the one thing in common is that the clock no longer matters. The dates no longer matter. It's basically is the recovery time. And that will be determined by the time that you put into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I want to just double click on this, like that you are giving permission for it to be grief. Because mm -hmm. sometimes, again, I feel like, you know, if, if you look at like losing running in, you know, in the world of oh, I've got a roof over my head. I make mm -hmm. a good living. I, you know, my family is healthy. You know, I'm okay overall. Right. I've got my safety, my basic needs met. It sometimes it feels like in the, you know, it, global warming, politics, right. all that stuff. It just doesn't feel like that big of a deal. Right. It, but inside it feels like a huge deal. And sometimes I felt kind of selfish making it such a big deal. I understand that. But I think people that have lost a pet would say the exact same thing, right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, in our society, we seem to have these uh, landmarks or these yardsticks about how much we can give to each thing. And really, that's not the way it is, is that we have individual perceptions of our own losses, and we don't have the right to tell somebody how big or how small it is. And certainly, when we look at quality of life, it's the same sort of thing is that we knew for a long time as researchers, I can't evaluate your life because for the same reasons that you said, okay, you're married, you have a good standard of economics, you're educated, those sorts of things. But it's not my perception of what your life is. It's your perception. It's a subjective evaluation of it. So I do think that we have to start thinking more about how we can allow people to subjectively experience these things at rates that they're comfortable with and allow it because there is an awful lot going on in the world. But it's not a game that we want to play where we start saying this is valid and this is not valid for my emotions. Emotions are emotions regardless of where they're directed towards. Yeah, yeah. So at what point do you feel like grief becomes unhealthy? And I realize that you just said you can't, you can't evaluate it. So I'm not asking you to like put like, but I do think, you know, I mean, again, like for, for me, two years felt, I mean, look, I look back now and I'm like, well, that's the time that I needed to take. But yeah. at what point do you say, okay, maybe it would be good. And I, I did use a therapist at one point mm -hmm. who also just gave me the permission to grieve and just said, mm -hmm. look, this is this thing that you used to have in your life every day or most every day. And so it's like a best friend, you know, right. it's not like you're losing, I don't know, hmm. whatever. So is there, is there a time though, when you start to, to say like, okay, well, let's see if we can pull back a little bit. Right. I think it's when you start to be able to control your emotions a little bit more. So I'll give you a couple anecdotes. Again, dealing with elite athletes, when they go to compete in world or international Olympic events, they will say to me, I am not 
afraid of losing. I am afraid of my emotions in response to that loss, like how deep the disappointment is, how deep the frustration is. So in that situation, we do put a time limit on it. And we've talked about that before, which is, you know, put a really sad song on, do what you need to do, give yourself days, give yourself months, whatever it is, but you have to be able, I put the dates on the calendar. By this time, this is where we're moving through it. And from a personal anecdote, you said that my children are 20 and 21. Both of them left for university at the exact same time and year. I turned around and all of a sudden my house was empty. And people yeah. said to people said to me, what are you going to do? How are you going to manage this? And I said, I'm going to sit on my front stoop and I'm going to cry and I'm going to cry and cry until I'm so sick of myself that I'm going to get up and I'm going to move forward into my life. And that's exactly yeah. what I did. And so I think that's what I want people to put that second step in is that I'm going to feel badly. I am going to feel sorry for myself because that's what grief is. It's about my loss and it's about poor me. And this is how I feel. And I need some time. And but we also have to say that second part until I'm going to be so sick of myself or so or I'm going to sign up for something else or I'm going to give myself that kick in the butt that I need and I'm just going to move through it. And again, it's not that I'm going to be emotionally ready to do that, but I'm going to do the action first and I'm going to hope that the emotions follow. So do the action and the emotions will follow. We always try to wait to be led by our emotions and it doesn't lead us into great places. So sometimes we just got to do that action and the emotion will follow. Yeah. Uh, showing up, right? That's what I yeah. say a lot. You just got to show up, right? And yep. then see what happens. Absolutely. I love it. So how do you, I mean, so we've talked a little bit about the hard parts, the grief, mm-hmm. the frustration, the anger. Like when, when, if you were helping somebody like me, how would you suggest they positively transition from running? I think you absolutely have positively transitioned from running. I still know that it will always be a scar for you. It's something that you would prefer to be doing. Plan A would be that you would be running right now. And it's acceptance of that. But also the fact that you're doing this podcast and you're having conversations about it, that has to bring some value. I know it may not be the same value, but it's the fact that you're still able to operate in this space and you have controlled all your controllables. You dealt with the fact that you're no longer able to run. It doesn't mean that you still can't be a valuable contributor in this running space for yourself and for others. And you're doing it. You're exercising it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, like with somebody who is is in more um, in the journey right now, like if they are feeling like, how do I expose myself back to running? Like maybe they've made peace and they've found some cycling or tennis or pickleball or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. That is a nice place for them to find community and athletic validation, but they want to hang out with their running friends or they want to volunteer to race. I mean, do you just kind of, again, just show up and see what happens or do you have any advice when it comes to opening up that wound a little bit? I think that that's very individually dependent. So for example, if I'm working with a runner that's at a training camp in Arizona and they become injured, the first thing I ask them is, what do you think would be best for you? Do you want to continue to stay immersed in that experience or do you want Mm. to get out of it? And, you know, avoidance can be a good coping strategy too. It's like, why would we put ourselves in that space if it's hard for us to actually do it? Right. So Mm -hmm. I think that's where I want people to be more aware of it and take a step back and say, do I want to go and volunteer at this race? Or if I go into volunteer this race, is it just going to give me more work to do after this race is done where I have to put this in a place? 
And so that's what I want people to know themselves more and know what their own coping strategies. There's no right and there's no wrong, but there is acceptance. And that, you know, I'm working with an athlete right now that she just basically said to me, look, I know I'm supposed to be happy about these other things that are going on in my world. I've got these other accomplishments, but nothing, nothing compares to what it is that I did when I competed. And I said, absolutely good for you to recognize that good for you to recognize that right and so but it's not a fair comparison it's not a fair fight and again i'm going to go back to the us open but he medvedev he just said at the end he said i want to thank everyone for supporting me on this journey of sport that can be really sad it can be really joyful it can be really easy and it can be really hard there's nothing else like sport that can ever be replicated in your life but there still is some good in other things that you can find yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love it. And I love that you're a tennis fan. <laughs> Go Coco, right? That was a yeah. pretty, did you watch oh, that match too? Yes, I did. That was so exciting. Very well. That done. was exciting, <laughs> but it was hard to, I got to say, I felt a little bad for her in uh, her opponent, Sri Lanka. Is that how you say it? Yes, name? I think so. I mean, she just kept hitting her forehand out and I was like, yeah. oh, it just felt like the crowd was not, I mean, I it know. was that's a rough environment. Well, I, I work with tennis players and honestly, there's nothing like it to be standing out there on your own to make all those decisions that, you know, there's no other sport where they tell you, you can't talk to your coach. Right. And I know that they still yeah. do at certain times, but in a sport too, that basically you make four errors and you lose a game. So, you know, you really have to be mentally sound to be able to do that. So my hat goes off to tennis players because I think they're exceptional. Agreed. Well, and so you kind of practice what you preach. I mean, you, you obviously are still running mm-hmm. these days, but you kind of took a detour last, was it during COVID or was that mm-hmm. what, tell about what it was and why you chose to kind of give yourself more of an athletic outlet? Well, it was interesting. So again, I, I alluded to the fact my children went off to university. I had just been through COVID and I really sat in my life and I felt like every emotion that I was experiencing was in relation to something that was happening. COVID was in my life. I had to adjust to that. I was frustrated like everybody else. My children were leaving. I was sad. And so I thought to myself, I really want to do something in my life where I am in control of my own emotions. So whether it's I'm sad, happy, mad, or whatever it is, I want to do it. So I had always had faith in my conditioning and my cardiovascular ability. And I worked with a number of Canadian athletes who were on the national boxing team. And one of them, Mandy Bougeau, was retiring. And I had said to her, you know, when you're all done and your journey's done, I said, find me a fight. I'd really love to do this. (laughs) Not even anticipating, not even knowing what I was getting into. And uh, she did. And I had a really nice team and I, I trained harder than I've trained for anything for about six months. And then I headed off in a plane out to another province, British Columbia, and I had a fight and it made me face every fear I ever had about being you know no one's jumping out and hitting you when you're running yeah that that way right like there's no pain involved in it there's no standing face to face with anyone or toe to toe so I just was so grateful for my running ability because honestly when we got to that third round that had been my mantra was that when we get to the third round nobody beats me in this third round I've been running all my life no one's got better conditioning than me in this thing and so I I was successful I won it and I've really I enjoyed that process so I am looking for another challenge now in terms of how can I use that conditioning base or all the things that I've learned in running into some other challenge for this next year. Wow. wow. I really, I, so when we talked, you were like, you was like, oh, I've taken up boxing. I saw, I, I saw it as kind of like, <laughs> you know, hitting a punching bag now. And then I didn't realize you went to a true fight. Like, 
What? I mean, was that just so, you said you faced every fear you've ever had. I mean, what was that like mm-hmm. being in the ring with someone coming at you? Well, it was, it, it was interesting. Sparring was the first one. So when I started to spar and actually someone has the capacity to actually hit you and hurt you. And it was, you had to have a gut check. You had to figure out, was this important enough? And what could I do to protect myself? And that was probably one of the most thrilling things. And even talking to you right now, my heart rate is wow. elevated. Wow. <laughs> because there's, because, you know, and now I have the decision about whether I want to do it again. There's another fight out in Vegas and I'm trying to figure out whether I want to step into this ring again or not. And uh, it, it is, I, I, it's the purest form of sport in terms of having you face another opponent and just trying to use your will and your way to impose it on someone else. And they're trying to do the exact same thing on you. So it takes all your cardiovascular training. It takes all of your mental strength. It takes everything that you can find. Wow. Wow. Well, so flipping that a little bit into advice, Mm -hmm. how do you think people like, how do you suggest people find their boxing or something that, you know, again, another athletic pursuit? Is it just a game of like whack-a-mole, just try a whole bunch of different things and see what feels good? Or I think it can be a combination of both things. I think that if you've heard me a couple of times in this thing, I always say, sit back and take a moment. So even in my daily life, I make sure that there's so many moments when I get flustered or I have to make decisions that I truly just take a step back in my brain and say, Kim, what is it that you want at this moment? Get rid of all the distractions, get rid of all the irrelevant noise. What do you think would be beneficial at this time? And so I always encourage people to do that, whether on a daily basis or when you start thinking about the next step. So processing, ruminating, having some things. I try to think about things like right now, the master's games are huge. And so that's the one that I'm starting to think about going back to running 100s and 200s like I did in high school, right? We can do anything that we want. There's so many opportunities. So to think about the continuum of, do I want to have a bigger goal that will be competitive or performance oriented? Do I want to have more of a process goal? Do I want to just start thinking about regularity in terms of what I'd like in my life and how I want to manage that? What is it that I want? What would we I define as success in the next month, two months, six months? And if you give yourself that opportunity, and it doesn't come to you all at once, as I said, it just sometimes when you're walking, just let it ruminate, start thinking about making a decision in one direction, and start recreating it or creating it in your mind and thinking about how that experience would give you different emotions or ways to think about it so that you can start making some real, um, you know, self-directed decisions in the future. But first of all, you just got to let them ruminate, got to let them percolate a little bit before you can figure out which way you're going to go. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, you are so helpful. I just think your perspective coming through is so, and and the energy that comes through is really, thank you. it does feel like there is another side. And I know that I've talked to some runners who are, you know, clinging right now because uh, rightly so, you know, it's, it's part of the process, but it's just to hear your words in the way that you spin things and not, not in a, you know, in a, in a gross way, but just spin them as in like, give your perspective on it is just so helpful. Oh, is, there, is there anything else that you want to add, Kim, that I haven't talked asked you about? No, I, I think that's just the big thing is I just want to give people permission to feel what they feel and do what they do. I think that sometimes we get caught up in what we ought to do or what we should do or what we think people want us to do. And the world yeah. is big and the world is vast. And now is the time, right? So let's not be limited by our perceptions of ourselves. And and that is what I what I think is sometimes the biggest 
tragedy when you're dealing with humans is that their perceived barriers are so much greater than their actual barriers. So please let's really question those sorts of things, those stories we've been telling ourselves, those narratives that we've got stuck in our brain, because it's never too late to change those in a really productive and really fun way. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. You are, um, yeah. Thanks a lot for, for sharing your perspective and we wish you the best. And hey, thanks. if you go to Vegas, we want, maybe I think that's a different podcast. <laughs> sure. I want to hear about how you prepare for that and, yeah. and, and the actual yeah. fight. So. Okay, for sure. Awesome. So if you're needing another athletic outlet than running, consider our new Epic Hike program. This 20-week program is built so that you can feel strong and capable on a day-long Epic Hike like Yosemite's Half Dome, a Colorado 14er, or another Epic Adventure you have in mind. This program has everything you need, cardio, strength, gear and nutrition guidelines. You'll be so prepared that all you have to focus on on your hike day is taking in the scenery and in taking in your calories. Check it out. It's under the training programs on our anothermotherrunner.com site. I will also hyperlink in the show notes. And wanted to give one little preview for who we're talking to in our fourth and final episode of The Final Finish Line. We are going to chat with Britt Parker and Kathy Engstrom, two mother runners who you may know. They were both training for the Trans Rockies race, which is a big long epic event in here in Colorado and both kind of came to the end of their running careers while training. So good perspective because they're kind of in different places right now. So that will be next week and that will be our fourth episode of the final finish line. Our podcast today was produced by Barry Medore of Fire on the Bluff in St. Paul, Minnesota. Minnesota.